Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, how many of your life's 10 biggest decisions have you already made? My guest today, psychologist Dr. Adrian Camilleri, would often ask this question to friends and family and found that it generated a lot of interesting conversation. It also generated a lot of his own thoughts, which made him want to dive more deeply into it and empirically study it and other related questions as well. The result was the biggest life decisions project, which we'll be talking about on the show today. Adrian first explains the criteria that define a big life decision, the most common ones people make, and which of these decisions people rank as being the most important. We then talk about the numbers and types of big life decisions people typically make in each decade of their lives and how these decisions tend to be front-loaded in your 20s, but you'll still have a surprising number to make in your later years too. Adrian shares which decisions people tend to look back on positively and are correlated with higher life satisfaction and which tend to lead to poor outcomes and regret. We also get in the way people can both underestimate and overestimate the importance of some decisions before ending with what Adrian has learned by working on the project about how to make good life decisions. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash 10 decisions. Adrian Camilleri, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. So you are a consumer psychologist, but you've been doing some research on big life decisions that people make. Curious, how did you get started researching big life decisions? How is this connected to your work as a consumer psychologist? Well, as a psychologist, I'm really interested in how people make decisions. Now, most of the decisions that I tend to study are those that you might call small, such as you know how to choose different options on a menu. Uh, but a few years ago, I found myself having to make a number of very large decisions. So I was deciding whether to get married to my long-term girlfriend. Uh, I was living in the US at the time, and I had to decide what job to take and whether it was going to be in the US or, or back home in Australia. Uh, and then a little bit after that, I was deciding whether or not to buy a house and, and have children. So these were so much more important than the decision about you know what to choose off a menu. And most of my research wasn't really helpful in, in making these bigger life decisions. And when I looked at the existing literature, I didn't find much to help me there either. So I thought, you know, there seems to be a bit of a gap here. So that's when I decided to start this big life decisions project. And it really began by asking people a pretty simple question, which was, how many of your life's 10 biggest decisions have you already made? And that's a question that really gets a conversation going. So from, from that point forward, I decided to take a little bit of a more scientific approach and get people's answers to that question and related questions. Okay, so let's uh, talk definitions. In your research, how are you defining a big life decision? My working definition of a big life decision at the start of this project was one in which you explicitly are making a choice between two or perhaps more options, knowing that the outcome is going to have a, a significant, possibly long-term impact on how you and, and maybe others live. So, so that's how I started thinking about, but uh, I really wanted to know what others thought the definition was. So I've asked hundreds of people to tell me what their definition is. And I, I've taken those responses and I, I've hired people to read through those responses independent of me to try to sort of synthesize what are the, the core features of a big decision? And we've come up with nine or 10. So first is the decisions are rarely made. So for example, getting married is, is a typical big life decision. And most people do that once, maybe twice. Um, decision involves a lot of thinking and 
because it's part of the definition that people know they're making a big decision at the time. So they often spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, the decision outcomes are uncertain. The decision often challenges our morals or values. So for example, the decision to get an abortion is, is often a really big one. And that often challenges people. Um, the decision often requires significant investment of resources. So here I'm thinking about things like buying a house the decision rules out many other options. So if you pursue one career, for example, you're, you're ruling out every other career. Big decisions tend to impact multiple areas of your life as well as multiple people in your life. They, they have long-term consequences and big decisions tend to be difficult to take back or, or undo. Gotcha. So those are kind of the ideas of like what makes a big life decision a big life decision. When you looked at the research that you've done, these, these surveys you've done, what are the most common big life decisions that people make? Yeah. So I've asked hundreds of people to tell me about their, their biggest life decisions. And I, they were basically open text boxes where people could tell me anything they wanted to. And I had some really fascinating stories come up, but um, it, was, it was a mess initially. So I was really trying to come up with some kind of structure uh, in the end, I came up with a structure that had nine decision categories, and then within those, 58 different decision types. So the, the decision categories are, the first one is career-related big decisions, and the most common of these is to start a new job. Uh, there's the education-related decisions, and the most common here is to pursue a degree. There are family-related decisions, and the most common one here is to have a child. There are finance-related decisions, the most common being buying a home. We have relationship-related decisions, and the most common one here is getting married. There are relocation-related decisions, the most common being to move to a new state. There are self-destruction-type decisions. These less common, but the most common among them is to begin an addiction. And then we have the self-developmental decisions. Again, these are relatively less common, but... They include things like pursuing a religion or engaging in, in travel or holiday. So out of that list, the, the most common decisions were to start a new job, get married and pursue a degree. And there were also some interesting differences in terms of who you asked. And, and by, by that, I mean the age of the person. So decisions that were made by those who were younger or described by those who were younger tended to focus more on things like education Whereas those who are older, they tended to more often describe things like uh, getting divorced and retiring. Gotcha. I mean, we'll talk about the how decisions change over the life course of a person. So you just list off you know, the most common decisions. So it's basically education, job, family, like marriage, have kids. When you asked people and you did these surveys, did you ask them like what they felt was like the most the most important decision out of all the major life decisions they made? Yeah, I did. So I'd ask people to tell me about their 10 biggest life decisions so far. But then I asked them, can you please rank those decisions from most to least important? And what we find is that at the top of the list, the, the, the decision that's ranked as the most important is ending a life. And this was often in the form of an abortion. And it wasn't very common, but when it was mentioned, more than 50% of those who mentioned it put it right at the top of the list. Um, other decisions that were put right at the top of the list were engaging in self-harm, getting married, having a child, and pursuing religion and spirituality. 
So again, it's interesting to look at this list because as I said, ending a life was fairly rare, but getting married was very common. And about half of those who mentioned getting married, again, put it at the top or, or second on their list. So we can think about sort of de- decisions in two dimensions. One is how common are they? And also how important are they when they happen? And so I think if you were to ask me, what is really the biggest decision in life? It'd be a combination of most common and also most important. And that would be getting married and then having a child. But then we have these other relatively uncommon decisions, but when they're faced, they're often monumental. And I think, you know, when I was stepping back, trying to summarize what what are these decisions representing? Is there a, a further abstraction I can make? And it seemed like people trying to solve kind of four basic questions in life. And that was, you know, what kind of education should I be getting? How should I be earning a living? Where should I put down roots? And perhaps most important, who should I put down those roots with? Uh, I'm curious about this idea of like starting like uh, like self harm. Do people consider that a decision? Because I feel like oftentimes we think of like addiction or you know doing self harm, whether that's I don't know cutting yourself or something like that. Right. People don't really think like I purposely thought about doing this. It just sort of happens. I'm curious about that dynamic of like is that it really a decision? Well, I guess it's it's up. I, I can't tell whether it's a decision. They tell me it was a decision. Mm. And I should also point out that we're, I guess, getting in the sample of those who engaged in self-harm and weren't successful in many cases in committing suicide, because obviously we don't get those responses. So I think for, for many people, it was a decision. And for example, cutting might be, you know, not an attempt to commit suicide, but maybe an attempt to get attention and say, look, I'm, I'm in trouble here. I need help. And so I don't think Many of them spent a lot of time thinking about the decision before they made it. And um, we might talk later on about which decisions people spent a lot of time thinking about versus those that they did not spend much time thinking about. And certainly the self-destruction type decisions, such as engaging in self-harm, committing a crime, these are decisions that people didn't spend very much time thinking about. When you talked about people about big decisions, did things come up about like what to do with an elderly parent who's, you know, got some sort of terminal disease or has Alzheimer's, did that come up as well? Yes. So the category of ending a life included potentially people who were on life support and the decision maker was responsible for deciding what happened there. And one of the other categories was choosing for another person. And often that was for a child, but sometimes it was for a parent. And another decision was seeking medical treatment. And so sometimes that was for the individual. Maybe let's say they had cancer and they've got different options on how to seek treatment, Uh, but that could also be for for a loved one. Let's talk about the, when these decisions happen. So you mentioned earlier, there, there are differences when people say they make big life decisions. When you're younger, typically education's on your mind and that you think that's the, a big life decision. Right. What else are the differences across the life spectrum when it comes to big life decisions? Yeah. So I asked people to that, that question I started with initially, which is how many of your life's 10 biggest decisions do you think you've already made? And it's a bit of a, a tricky question because it requires you to kind of cycle forward in life and, and basically figure out, okay, when, when am I going to die on that day? Hopefully many years from now, looking back on my life, how many of my 10 biggest life decisions have I already made in the year 2021? 
But I did ask that question. I get some sensible answers back. So those in their 20s, they say they've made about three, three and a half of their 10 biggest life decisions. Uh, Those in their 30s say they've made about four and a half. Those in their 40s say about five. Those in their 50s, about five and a half. Those in their 60s, about six and a half. And those in their 70s, about seven. So there is this general increase, but it is interesting that it kind of plateaus. And even those who are in their 70s, they think they've still got three big life decisions lying ahead of them. So that's interesting. When we look at the age period at which most of these decisions that have been made in the past were made, we, we see that it's something called the reminiscence bump. And it actually shows that most of the memories and the decisions that people recall, even for those who are 50, 60, 70 year old, they tend to be during the period of 20 to 29 years old. So for every age group, most of the decisions were for the period of 20 to 29. And I guess that makes sense. This tends to be the period where people really you know, may establish themselves. They, they get a degree, maybe they start a career, they, they meet their life partner, they often buy a house. So this is a fundamental period in life. And this tends to be the, the time where most of the memories come from as well. I can also sort of break down the decisions in terms of those that tended to be made earlier in life versus those that tend to be made later in life. So as you mentioned, it's the education-related decisions that tended to be made earlier in life, such as you know, what university to go to, uh, what major to follow. There's also the self-destruction type decisions made earlier in life. So beginning an addiction, committing crime, doing some silly things. And also we see things like joining the military for, for those who are older. That happened when they were in their 20s. And then the decisions that tend to be made later in life, these were things wouldn't surprise you, such as retiring, making a will, taking social security, selling a home, closing down a business. So I think the the take-homes, I guess, are that big life decisions are front-loaded. You're most likely to make them between ages of, say, 16 and and 35. But although front-loaded, big decisions are happening throughout one's life. So you may think at age, let's say 35, which is approximately where I'm at, um, with a degree, got a job, a home, a spouse, child, it seems like most of my big life decisions um, have already been made. But I'm probably wrong, and, and you are too if you're thinking the same thing, because life seems to have a way of constantly throwing curveballs. So in your future, there may be postgraduate degrees and career changes, renovations, remarriages, um, even more kids. And I guess, as I mentioned, even those who were you know, 70, pushing 80 years old, they still thought that there were a number of big life decisions lurking around the corner. And the data that I've collected seems to suggest that they're probably correct. Yeah. If I look at my own experience, I feel like I made most of my big life decisions in that time period, like 20 to 29. And it's interesting, that's when I journaled a lot. I used to be a journaler mm. and I don't, I haven't journaled in a long time. And it's, I think it's because like, I don't have any big decisions to make, <laughs> right? Like it's mostly my life for like the past, I don't know, six years has been pretty much the same. Right. So I've had kids, married, house, Jobs, all right. School's done, but I mean, who knows? That could that could change any moment. Like you said, I you know, job could go 
kerplunk, or someone could get sick in your family. You could get a sickness and you're forced to make a big life decision that you didn't even think you'd have to make. Yeah. I mean, I, like you also wrote a journal when I was in my early twenties and have not done that for a long time. And sort of the period in life that we're at now, maybe thirties, forties, this is a high pressure time because we're in the middle of careers, paying off mortgages. We've got younger children. We've also got older parents that we need to take care of. So it's, it's, it's a really busy time. If you look at the judgments of happiness, this tends to be the lowest um, period for most people because it's so stressful. But I think I can assure you there will be some big life decisions uh, ahead of you. I don't know if you looked at this, but one one thing I thought of as you were talking was the trend in people marrying later and how this has maybe crammed life decisions together that they otherwise wouldn't would have been more spaced out if they'd gotten married earlier. One thing I've heard is, you know, as you get married later, you know, you have to make that decision of like to have kids a lot sooner than maybe than you would if you were you got married if you're 24. But if you're getting married when you're 37, you might have to make that decision really fast. And then you have a kid, let's say you have a kid. Then you have, you have the ch- challenge, like you have the challenge of making decisions for your kids, but then you also have to think, well, man, I got my parents, they've, mm. they're older, they've got issues. And now you have this situation where you have people making a lot of big life decisions. They otherwise would have been more spaced out if they had made other life decisions earlier. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah I don't think I looked or, or have too many insights from my data on this, but you're right that There is definitely a trend of of people marrying later and having children later. And probably these big decisions are getting squished together and happening in in the same period of time. And and that's probably increasing stress during those times. And it's also true that many of these big life decisions are what I might call path dependent or they, you know, you can't let's say, get divorced unless you've gotten married. And so there are a number of other decisions where you, you can't engage in a particular decision unless you've come from a previous decision. And um, so it's interesting also to think about those paths. Yeah, it'd be interesting to look into that more. When you did these surveys, were you able to see any differences amongst you know, gender about what people thought were, like men and women thought were a big life decision? Any difference there? Yeah, I haven't spent a ton of time analyzing gender differences, but I certainly have noticed a a few patterns. So uh, men are are much more likely to mention career-related decisions, such as starting a new job, um, joining or or leaving the military. Men are more likely to mention finance-related decisions, such as buying an investment. Men are also more likely to mention self-developmental decisions, such as pursuing religion or engaging in a hobby or sport. On the flip side, women are more likely to mention decisions related to family, such as having a child or or making decisions for their child. Women are more likely to mention relationship decisions, such as getting a divorce and even disclosing secret information. And women are more likely to mention relocation decisions, such as moving to a new state. It's interesting to reflect on what's causing these differences. Is it different life experiences or is it different criteria for what's important in life? It's, it's a little bit hard to tell from, from my data, but certainly, for example, getting a divorce or having a child, this is a decision that both men and women would be eligible to describe. And so it's interesting that it comes up more often for women than men. So maybe that's a difference in the criteria. And yeah, it's, it's hard to separate that from, from what I've collected so far. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. 
And now back to the show. So when you ask people about the big decisions they've made in their life, how do people reevaluate their the decisions they made? Is it like in a positive light? Is it in a negative light? Is there regret? Like how do when people just talk to you about those big life decisions they have made, what what do they tell you? Yeah, so for every decision that people describe to me, I ask them to retrospectively evaluate those decisions from basically it was a great decision to it was a bad decision or it was somewhere in between. So I guess the good news is that most people are evaluating their past decisions positively. And that actually ties into something in the academic literature called the positivity bias. And this is the observation that those who are older tend to be focused more on positive things. So positive emotions, positive memories. So that's something, I guess, for everyone to look forward to. It was interesting to break down the types of decisions that were most likely to be described positively in retrospect and compare those to the decisions that were least likely to be positively described. So those decisions that were most highly evaluated were to pursue a philosophy or ideology, to pursue religion or spirituality, to quit an addiction, and um, even take social securities up there. Uh, In contrast, the, the decisions that were least positively evaluated. So we, I guess, could consider these to be the regretful decisions. These were, again, those self-destructive type decisions. So beginning an addiction, committing a crime. Uh, There's also engaging the sexual activity there and disclosing secret information. So I guess we can see a bit of a pattern in those responses. I mean, I I didn't conduct this research, but one of my favorite books on the topic was uh, written by Bronnie Ware, she's an Australian palliative carer. She wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And she basically summarizes what she learned from, from working those who working with those who are soon to depart. Um, the one that stood out for me is I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Uh, a lot of people who reach these older ages, they they just disconnected from from so many of those who who really understand them and, and accept them as they are. So I think when we're thinking about these decisions and regretful decisions, it's clear that the the most enduring regrets relate to social relationships. You know, humans, we have a biological need to belong. And it's important to nurture those relationships. Another thing that, that stood out from, from my research as well as conducted by others is that most of the big life regrets we have relate to decisions that are inconsistent with our personal life rules and values. And I think it's important to understand what your values are and then make decisions consistent with them. Because even if you make a decision and, and things turn out poorly, at least you can have that knowledge that, you know what, I made a decision that made sense at the time and was consistent with who I am as a person or who I want to be as a person. And I guess finally, the the biggest regrets tend to relate to things you didn't do. And that might be because you were you know scared or, or maybe you were too busy working. And I think it's easier to take a decision engage in some kind of change and then course correct if things aren't working, um, that's much more likely to happen than um, you know, trying to, let's say, time travel and pursue opportunities that you left behind. So when you did the survey, you also asked people to predict future big life decisions, you know, kind of like what decisions 
they'll make or when they'll happen? What did you find in those questions? Yeah, so I was really interested not just in what people's past decisions were, but also what they thought were the future big life decisions. So I asked people this question in a number of ways. So for example, one group I asked them, as I did with everyone, tell me how many of your life's biggest decisions, your 10 life biggest decisions you've already made. But then I asked them to estimate what their answer to that same question would have been 10 years ago. And also I asked them to predict what their answer to that same question will be 10 years from now. And so with these three data points, I can basically compare the predictions of, let's say, a 25-year-old with the realities of a 35-year-old. And we can also compare the the recollections of a 45-year-old with the realities of the 35-year-old. And so we can do this with, with each age or each age group. So a couple of interesting findings. So firstly, people overestimate how many of their life's biggest decisions they've already made. So if we just look, for example, at the 45-year-olds, they indicated that they had made three of their life's biggest decisions when they were 10 years younger. So when they were 35, they thought they'd made three big life decisions. However, when we asked the 35-year-olds, how many of your life's biggest decisions have you already made? They say 4.2. So 4.2 is higher than three. So that suggests that there's some kind of overestimate happening there. And we see that same pattern for every age group. We also see that people overestimate how many of their life's biggest decisions will happen in the near future. So again, if we look at 35-year-olds making predictions about what how many of their big life decisions they would have made by the time they're 45, they suggest it's about eight, 8.3. Whereas if we look at what 45-year-olds report, they say it's just 5.8 at age 45. So again, we can see that this, this forecasting error exists and it's, it's even stronger for those who are younger. Um, so that's sort of some difference in, in when big decisions are going to happen. We also can see prediction errors in the types of decisions that are expected. So we can think about decisions that are over-expected and those that are under-expected. So for example, younger people tend to over-predict decisions such as traveling and buying something or an investment as big life decisions. And it turns out that those who are older, they don't mention things like traveling in their list. In contrast, those who are younger tend to underpredict things like starting a new job, getting a divorce or ending a romantic relationship or quitting a job. So these, these decisions tend to be ones that are, the younger people say aren't going to happen very often, but those who are older say, yeah, that actually did happen much more often than I expected. So I guess some important take-homes from, from this analysis. Firstly, people are really poor at predicting when their big life decisions are going to happen. And it seems like people just find it really hard to imagine any big life decision that's more than 10, maybe 15 years in the future. And it also seems like the, the foresight that, that the younger people are lacking is potentially a problem because were they able to see what's coming down the road, they would probably make some different decisions such as quitting smoking or or buying insurance or uh, investing their savings or or taking care of themselves better. So I think this, this, you might call it a, a blindness is particularly problematic, but it's something that we can improve if we, if we think hard about what's actually coming down the road and look at those around us who have 
had more experience than us. This is interesting. In your study or research as a psychologist, have you found any tactics that work that can help people think, or pretty young people, think about their old self so that they do things that their old self will appreciate uh, when they're 50, 60, 70 years old? Yeah, this is a big question. How do you get people to make good decisions now for their, themselves 30 years down the road? A lot of research actually has been done on, on retirement savings because this is a classic problem where the decisions that we make today are going to have significant financial impacts on our future selves. And so there have been a number of studies that have attempted to basically increase the connection that the, the present person feels about their future self, because often we don't think about our future self or when we do, they, they may not feel that close to us. And so my favorite study was one in which they took photographs of individuals and then they presented age-rendered images back to the individual. So you would basically see a photograph of yourself, but now you were like 70 years old. And in the study, they were trying to increase savings. And the way that they did this was essentially they had a, a button on screen that you could drag left to right, which was indicating how much savings you were going to put into retirement. And the age rendered face of yourself changed from being happy to sad, dependent on what you did. So if you put in very little savings, then your future self looked really sad. And if you put in a lot of savings now, then your future self looked quite happy. And um, as you can guess, since I'm mentioning it, and um, you can probably envision what this experience would look like, people felt much more connected to their future selves. And as a result, they were much more likely to increase the rate of savings today. So that's one fun way of just thinking about how you can increase the connection between your present self and your future self. No, yeah, that's something to think about. There's we often we often think of ourselves as like a, a one continuous person and we are, but what you need or want now is probably going to be completely different from what you need or want 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. Yeah, I, I guess as a psychologist at Harvard, he's got uh, Dan Gilbert. He's got a, a theory. It's called the uh, end of history illusion. And basically, he asks people to describe how much they've changed in the last decade, and then to predict how much they think they'll change in the next decade. And basically, people suggest that they uh, they've changed a lot in the last decade. They've grown a lot. They've changed their tastes and personality have changed, but. Um, they don't think they're going to change very much in the future. And it, it seems like this, this point in time right now is sort of people's peak and their final version of themselves. And, and that's just not true. So when you did this research and did this survey and you asked people about their big life decisions, were you able to figure out which big decisions lead to long-term happiness and fulfillment? Yeah. So I attempted to answer this question. So I asked people to complete a standard life satisfaction questionnaire, which basically just asked people things like, you know, how satisfied are you with your life? And, you know, is how close to ideal is your life? So it's, it's not a measure of happiness in terms of like how, how happy you're feeling at the moment. It's a self-reflective life satisfaction question. And so I was able to look for correlations between number of or different types of big life decisions and who was more likely to report having a high life satisfaction. So 
those who had high life satisfaction scores were much less likely to mention things like engaging in self-harm, which, which makes sense. Having a family member move in was also <laughs> turned out to be quite a negative uh, impact mm. on uh, life satisfaction. And then also interesting was getting medicine or treatment. And so obviously this decision was mentioned by those who were having health problems. The decisions that were significantly more likely to predict high life satisfaction were pursuing religion and spirituality. And that's, you know, I've mentioned that one a number of times now that comes up a lot. Buying a home, so having that sort of financial security um, seems to be a big one in just generally having finances in order. It also seems like some big life decisions that seem really important at the time may not be as big. Um, so in particular, education-related decisions, they seem really big, really important. What university degree should I study? But it turns out these sort of fade in importance over time. And one of the reasons is that I think I've read, you know, we can expect five career changes in our lifetime. So many people's initial degree at university just doesn't matter a, a decade or so on. So I think some of the take-homes from this analysis is that Firstly, the good news is that there's there's many paths to happiness. Most people, if we look at the, the results to that life satisfaction scale, most people were fairly satisfied with their life. And it was regardless of the unique composition of the big life decisions they'd made. It's just because people are fairly happy. They like who they are. And it was their unique set of decisions that got them, got them to who they are today. So even though it seems at the time like many of these big life decisions are really going to have a huge impact on our life satisfaction and happiness, you're probably going to end up fairly happy regardless of what happens. So for, for some, that might be reassuring. Um, having said that, there are some big life decisions that are probably going to decrease your life satisfaction. And, and these are the sort of self-destructive decisions such as committing crime, maybe engaging in, in drugs and getting addicted. These tend to be decisions that are not really thought through much at the time, but they, they really put one on a, a treacherous path that can last for decades. And then finally, there are some big life decisions that seem to reliably predict a higher life satisfaction. And the thing that's common among them is that they really involve taking control of your life and, and pouring yourself into a particular pursuit or project, be it religion or, or something else. And I think it's hard to sometimes make the time for these more self-developmental decisions, but in the end, these tend to be the ones that uh, may be most impactful on our happiness. Yeah, I think that insight about like college, you, young people, you think it's the most important thing, but then you ask a 70-year-old and it probably won't even come up. I've seen that in my own life and just the lives of you know friends. Like I went to law school and when you're in law school, like the most important thing is like you have to get, you have to be like, get a good rank in your class. You got to get on law review because that's how you're going to get a job, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I asked my friends, you know, we're like 11, 12 years out of law school. Does, does that even come up anymore? Like what, what your GPA was in law school is like, it hasn't come up like since I graduated. I mean, like, like no one, no one cares because yeah. like now what matters is like the reputation I've built as a practicing attorney, not right. what I did as a law student. Exactly. So when you did the survey, did you find out anything about 
practices or processes that people who make good life decisions like that are applicable to anybody? So like, I mean, basically, are there any tips that you found that help us get better at making big life decisions? Yeah. So whenever I ask people to tell me about their big life decisions, I also ask them to tell me about all of the factors surrounding that decision. I wanted to know what was the process that they used so I could get to this question that you're asking now, what makes a good big life decision? And there, there are a lot of results here. So I'll try to pick out the ones that um, I think are most perhaps easy to implement. So the de- decisions that were most favorably judged in retrospect, they tended to be the ones that firstly involved a change as opposed to maintaining the status quo. And so often we're faced with this decision. Should I, should I just stick with my current job or should I make the change? And it seems like a general good piece of advice is if you're kind of 50-50, unsure what to do, and you're thinking about, you know, I should just flip a coin here. It seems like the right thing to do is to make the change. Forget the coin, it, it, just, just go ahead and make the change. Another thing that turned out was that using a more analytical approach as opposed to a more intuitive approach tended to be associated with better decisions, at least in retrospect. So analytics means people took the time, they they did research, they asked people, they got advice, they weighed up their options, as opposed to using the more intuitive approach, which was just to sort of go with a gut feeling. So I definitely recommend using a more analytical approach, which often includes spending more time before making a decision. So some of those more self-destructive decisions Often the amount of time thought was like a few seconds, which is in comparison to some of the more self-developmental decisions, which I've described as as being hugely impactful on life satisfaction. People spent years in some cases thinking about those decisions before actually pursuing them. Another factor that was really important was confidence. How confident are you in your decision at the time? And often this confidence is, is derived from having thought through the options having reflected on your own goals and then committing to a decision. So I think that's important. And finally, decision makers who felt less obligated to make a decision at the time. So this, sometimes we're, we feel cornered to make a decision because of obligation from family or expectations of society. And that tends to be a, a recipe for disaster. So uh, attempting as much as you can to avoid the sense of obligation and, and choosing the option that you think is best for you. So overall, I think the take-homes for how to make good life decisions, firstly, it requires understanding yourself. So what are your goals? What are your values? How are you going to really know what's a good decision unless you have these as your reference point? So that's the first step. I think it's also important to recognize that a good decision is not just about ending up with a good outcome, but it's about having a good process to begin with. Because in most cases, you can't control the outcome. There's there's too many random elements, but you can control the process. And so having a process where you are able to reflect on your options, get advice from other people, I think is really important and certainly a good way to insulate yourself from feelings of regret later on. And finally, there's a lot of experience out there. Although I've mentioned big life decisions are rare, they're they're actually quite common in society. And so you might get married once in your life, but getting married is really common. And so there's a lot of wisdom that can be learned from the experience of others. And so I think it's important to seek out that wisdom. No, and for people, listeners who are looking for like a process to help them make better 
life decisions. We've had some guests on the podcast in the past. You might want to check out. We've had Annie Duke on the podcast. She's written a book, How to Decide. Simple tools for making better choices. A lot of neat tools there. And then the other one is Steven Johnson. He wrote a book about, it's called Farsighted, How to Make the Decisions that Matter the Most. And a lot of mental models that you can use to make the decisions. Like a lot of it's just trying to figure out different possibilities, right? That's when you're making a decision. Like you said, life decisions are so complex because they can go down these different pathways. And so their whole idea is to help you get a better idea of the different possibilities and then decide which one's the best out of all the options. Yeah, those are great books. Definitely, I recommend those. So where do you see this research going? Like where else would you like to do with this research on big life decisions? Well, I guess at this point I focused on Americans and there's certainly going to be cultural differences. So it'd be really interesting to see how different cultures and those from different countries, you know, arrange their big decisions and maybe they've got even different criteria. So one of the things that I've done is build a website. It's called 10biggestdecisions.com and I've been encouraging people to go to that website. They can explore the data, but they can also complete the survey and they can then compare their results with others. And so tens of thousands of people have uh, filled that in at this point. And so I'm starting to create a, a database there of different cultural results. I haven't stopped to look at the data yet, but um, that's certainly one interesting direction. And I mean, one of my other goals is really to try to put together a book that summarizes some of the wisdom here and, and maybe walks people through their 10 biggest life decisions, summarizing what I've learned from from conducting this research. So that's the thing. That's the big takeaway. People, like on average, people make 10 big life decisions. Yeah. When you freely ask people to just list down the number of big life decisions or big life events, you get a range like three to 20. And so 10 seems to be in that sweet spot of, of how many big life decisions they do make. Well, Adrian, where can people go to learn more about the work and maybe take part in that survey you talked about? Yeah, so 10biggestdecisions.com and feel free to explore the data and complete the survey. And if you have any questions about it, uh, feel free to contact me. My details are on the website. All right, Adrian, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. My guest today is Dr. Adrian Camilleri. He is the founder of the Biggest Life Decisions Project. You can learn more information about this project at 10biggestdecisions.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash 10decisions where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the A1 Podcast. Put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.